0: Well, good evening, yet again. Um, Our passage for this evening is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And while we won't be going through the entire book of Philippians together, I believe the Lord has something for us tonight from this powerful passage. So again, that passage is Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Pay careful attention, for this is the Word of God. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. Well, have you ever had one of those horrible dreams where you were back in school, perhaps you were given a test that you didn't study for. If you have had one of those dreams, I know the relief that you experienced when you woke up. Well, relax, I'm not going to make you relive any of those terrible memories, but I do want you to briefly relive one of my school memories. I was a sophomore in college, and in this particular class was learning about the Civil War. My class was assigned to read many of the different arguments people used to justify slavery and to abolish it. And since many Americans were nominally Christian at that time, most of the arguments for and against slavery were from the Bible— Now, it was difficult to read people, take God's holy word, and use it to suppress others. But my teachers decided it wasn't enough for us to merely read these arguments. They wanted us to debate them out. So as a large part of our grade, we were each assigned a historical position that uh, someone held in the Civil War. Some of us had to argue that slavery was a good thing and should go on unchanged. Others had to argue that slavery as an institution is okay, but American slavery needed to make some changes. I had to argue that slavery was wrong, but for the sake of the economy, it should be slowly abolished. And still others had to argue that slavery was completely wrong, and we must abolish it right away. Now granted, we didn't actually have to believe what we were arguing for. In fact, most of my classmates were horrified that they had to argue for slavery. But the point of the assignment was not that we would agree with our position, but simply that we would be able to understand the historic arguments well enough to articulate them in a debate. Well, debate day finally came, and we all arrived in our nicest suits and dresses with opening remarks prepared. And let me tell you, I saw the strangest thing occur in that debate room. Disgruntled students transformed into passionate presenters. Had a stranger stepped into that room, they would not have been able to distinguish the position from the person, for it seemed like each one was convinced in his own mind. And if I were to be truly honest with you, I must say something happened to us while we were debating. It was an unusual sensation. For even though we disagreed with ourselves, an attack on our position felt like an attack on our very selves. Why were we so passionate about defending something we disagreed with? Why did we take attacks so personally? If we were not defending a truth but a lie, why would we defend it with such zeal? Well, part of the reason is that we all wanted a good grade on the assignment. But it went deeper than that. A little thing called pride began to rise up in each one of us. The debate became not about truth, but about who could win the argument. We no longer cared what matter of evil we argued. We simply wanted the other to lose. We wanted to look good in front of our teacher and in front of our peers. And in comparison, we wanted others to look bad. Well, that is what Paul called selfish ambition. Its presence in the Philippian church was like a cancer infecting her unity. But Paul wrote to the Philippians like an experienced doctor diagnosing their cancer and prescribing the cure. And in short, the cure to that selfishness, that selfish ambition, the cure is humility. But the humility that Paul prescribes is not just a list of do's and don'ts, but it's Christ himself. But before we see the humility of Christ, we must first look at Dr. Paul's prescription for humility. So to begin, let's look together at verses 1 and 2. Verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul begins his physician's call to the sickly church by having them look away from their serious symptoms and onto their satisfying Savior. He does this through a series of if clauses. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, and if there is any affection and sympathy, now, unfortunately, time fails us to completely unpack the depths of these conditional clauses. And I do not just mean that our time in this worship service is too short. I mean time itself is too short. For who among us can exhaust the encouragement or comfort that comes from belonging to Christ? Our own catechism frames it as our only. way comfort in life and in death. But don't think that that word only signifies a limited amount of comfort, that is, belonging to Christ gives you only a little comfort, but instead think of only as signifying the enduring nature of this comfort above all others. That is to say, when every other comfort that you turn to fails, when food loses its taste and tv loses its appeal when all of the comforts of this world start to sink like shifting sand there is one rock that will never give way there is only one comfort that will sustain you through life and through death and that is in paul's words the encouragement in christ or in the words of the heidelberg catechism that i with body and soul, both in life and in death, and not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So I ask, is there any encouragement in belonging to Christ? Of course there is. Really, each of these ifs should be translated as since. Since there is encouragement in Christ. Since there is comfort in, from love and so on. Now, unfortunately, we cannot look at each of these occasions for joy and comfort, but it is important to see how Paul is using them in his call to action. He calls them to consider these beautiful realities that give encouragement, comfort, and joy. And then he says, in effect, if you have these joys, then complete my joy by being unified. Now, the precise relationship between the Philippians' joy and Paul's joy is a little unclear. But the book of Acts tells us that Paul was the first to bring the gospel to the Philippians. So perhaps Paul was cashing in some of his rapport that he had built with them as their spiritual father. Perhaps he was saying something like, if you have benefited in any way from the gospel that I brought to you, then benefit me. Or, if you have received joy from the Christ that I preached to you, then fill up my joy. Now, this may seem manipulative, but notice what Paul asks for. He's not asking for money or free labor, but he asks for unity. He says it in many different ways. He wants them to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is seeking only what is good for their health. This is like a doctor saying, if I have ever helped you in the past, help me by taking your health seriously. This is not a manipulative maneuver, but a carry call to action so this caring call is for unity now we must look at the cancer that is threatening this unity we see this cancer in verse 3a do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit now that same word for selfish ambition also shows up in Philippians 1:17 to describe the preachers of the gospel who preached not from goodwill, but from envy and rivalry. Now, don't pass over this quickly. These men weren't preaching the prosperity gospel or some heresy, for Paul said, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Surely Paul would not rejoice over the preaching of another gospel, another Christ, So they were actually speaking of the servant-hearted Christ who was born in a barn, washed dirty feet, and died on a cross. And they were using him as a means to get ahead. Now perhaps they thought that with Paul in prison, there was room on top, a vacant position. The preaching of the gospel for them was a way to climb the ecclesial ladder. But Paul commands the Philippians to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, if we understand selfish ambition as this life that is just centered around yourself, everything you do is to get ahead, even if it's putting others down, which was certainly true of those preachers, then conceit is the root of that ambition. Conceit is having an exaggerated view of yourself. So the relationship between selfish ambition and conceit is clear because if we really had a true view of ourselves, we would not want the world to revolve around us. We have a word for a world that revolves around us, and it is called hell. C.S. Lewis is really helpful here. He vividly described hell as an everlasting ruin, a decay, crumbling and retreating into yourself, a loss of all rationality and joy, a plunging into misery, but it's a self-plunging. It's a gnawing and an ache, but it's oriented inward, downward into the abyss. It is in one sense the opposite of heaven, Heaven is this ever-increasing further up, further into joy, into God, into life. But hell is the opposite of that. It is an everlasting movement away from God and into oneself. But of course, when we imagine a world centered around ourselves, this does not seem to us like hell, but heaven. This is because you and I are conceited. We think too highly of ourselves. And this inflated view of ourselves infects our minds, and it infects our hearts such that we are not of the same mind and of the same heart centered around Christ and his people, but we are of different minds and different hearts, each centered around ourselves. Our conceit leads to selfish ambition. We try to shape the world with us in the center. We try to climb up the ladder. And when this happens in a local church, it is like a cancer infecting her unity. And so, Dr. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But thankfully, he goes on to give us the cure to our cancer of selfishness. And we see this in the latter part of verse 3 and 4. Paul says, But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. The cure to selfishness is humility. And Paul defines humility in those difficult words, counting others more significant than yourself. Now John Calvin comments that it is no wonder why humility is such a rare virtue. We are all so far from Paul's command, for we can hardly stand to be on the same level as someone much less to count them as superior. But how do we esteem others as more significant than ourselves? Is the Harvard-trained lawyer to suppose that the dangerous criminal he is representing is somehow better than him? Should the CEO assume his unpaid intern is more significant than himself? Well, Paul is not commanding us to play pretend, to assume that we are actually less significant than we are. Rather, in verse 4, Paul tells us how we are to esteem others as more significant than ourselves. He says we are to consider not only our own interest, but also the interest of others. The point is that a humble person is a person who thinks about others. C.S. Lewis, again, was surely on to something when he said, do not imagine that if you were to meet a humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. But this brings us to an important question. Can we actually be humble After all, we have inherited sin from our father, Adam. We only need to spend two minutes with a toddler to see that we all naturally think about ourselves. Can we truly live lives concerned with others? Can we truly be humble? Well, this brings us to the command in verse 5. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 5 is actually very difficult to translate, but I'm convinced with a, a number of other scholars that argue that a better way to translate this would be to say something like, have this mind among yourselves, which indeed is proper for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is commanding the community of God, the church, to be humble, to think about others. And this humility is fitting of those who have been united to Christ. Now when I say that we have been united to Christ, I mean that God has joined himself to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in him we are partakers, both of him and of all his benefits. Now this mystical union whereby in calvin's words we become one with christ or in paul's words we are in christ this is the very reason we can be humble and it's the very reason we should be humble we can be humble because we are united to jesus himself who is himself humble And we should be humble because it is only fitting that Christ people are like Christ. Well, we have seen so far that the church should be humble because we are united to Jesus Christ who is humble. But now we must ask that maybe obvious question. Is it appropriate to call Jesus humble? After all, Jesus is God. Is God, the one who is clothed in splendor and majesty, humble? Is humility only something that we should use of creatures and maybe even sinful creatures at that? Is God really humble? Well, that question pushes us to look at the rest of our passage, which I have split into two. The humble servant, in verses 6 through 8, and the humble king in verses 9 through 11. So let us look together at verses 6 through 8. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Now, here we see a rather exalted depiction of Jesus in his pre incarnate state, that is, before he became a man. He was in the form of God. Here we are to think of the many Old Testament passages that describe the glory of the Lord as as his form. Take Job 40, verse 10. He adorns himself with majesty and splendor and clothes himself with honor and glory. Or Psalm 93, 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Jesus, in the form of God, means that his radiant glory was not hidden. This is also echoed in Jesus' high priestly prayer when he said, And now, Father, glorify me in, the, in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is clear proof that Jesus is truly God, for God does not share his glory, or his form, with another. But the stunning truth is that this is high and lifted one, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, or as some translations may say, as something to be used for his own advantage, or as something to be exploited. Jesus did not think of his unhidden majesty as a matter of giving, as a matter of gain, but a matter of giving. Rather than using his unconcealed glory for his own advantage, something he had every right to do, instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Now, we must be very careful here. Some men have wandered into heretical territory, as they've tried to understand this incalculable mystery. Some people have wrongly thought that emptying himself meant that Jesus laid aside some or all of his divine nature. But this is simply not the case. God cannot be divided into parts. God simply is who he is. And if we were to... If God were to cease any part of who he is, he would cease being God entirely. Therefore, if this emptying implies a change in the Son's deity, then the person who became flesh for our sake is not God, but is some sort of superhuman or humanized God. So what does it mean, then, that he emptied himself? Doesn't that sound like subtraction, like he's getting rid of something? Well, I grant to you that the language sounds like subtraction, but we must remember this is divine math, which plays by different rules. Verse 7 tells us how this math works. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Notice the logic here. Jesus emptied himself by taking. This is subtraction by addition. His emptying means taking on a servant form, that is a human form. So when we confess that Jesus emptied himself, we mean nothing more and nothing less than that Christ himself took upon himself a truly human nature. He was truly God and truly human. Though in his incarnation, he became a man, his glory was concealed. But we must not get so entrenched in these theological weeds that we miss the larger point. We so often try to climb up. Jesus came down. We think too highly of ourselves. But Jesus did not exploit his own glory. We think we deserve more glory. Jesus hid his glory. But there's more. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did not just take on human nature. For as mysterious and wonderful as this that is, it would not have been enough to reconcile us to God. But take heart, Jesus did not just become like you, but he acted as you. He was perfectly obedient in every way, even to the point of death on a cross. Behold this wondrous mystery that the God who ought to be against you is for you. The God who you could not obey has obeyed in your stead. Why did he do it? Why did he become a man? Why did he die? He did it for you. He He was born like you to die for you. There is no greater humility than this. No one has ever considered another's interest like this. But this leads us to wonder, is Christ still humble today? I mean, after all, he is not still scrubbing feet and dying on a cross. All of these wonderful things that we have described have been what theologians have called Christ's state of humiliation. But where is Christ now, and what is he like? Well, let us look together at verses 9 for 11. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God father. If verses 6 through 8 describe Jesus's state of humiliation, verses 9 through 11 describe Jesus's state of exaltation. He is no longer in a manger or on a cross. He has risen and is ascended to the right hand of God. And now, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name. The name, of course, is Lord. Yahweh, I am who I am, is, signifies the authority and power to exercise lordship over all creatures. Now, this does not mean that Christ became God at his resurrection— we must not forget verses 6 through 8 that describe him in his majestic glory before he became a man. But it does mean, as Vavink notes, in the resurrection, God openly appointed him son of God, Lord, King, and Mediator, saying to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He has been openly vindicated publicly glorified and he will be universally worshiped well so i ask you again is jesus still humble well if we mean by humble is he still in a state of humiliation then the answer would be no Jesus is high and exalted. His glory is not hidden, but radiates outward for all to see. And all who do see must confess Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father. But if we mean by humble, is Jesus' essential character still the same in a state of exaltation? Does he still care for his sheep? Does he still look after our interests? Does he still work all things for our good? Is he still for us? Does he still love us? Then the answer is a resounding yes. For what is Christ doing right now in his exalted state except for interceding for us? The reason Jesus' state of exaltation is good news is because Jesus is still the same person we met in his incarnation, in his earthly life. He is still humble in character. He is still compassionate in his nature. His state has changed. But in his person, he remains the same yesterday, today, and forever Brothers and sisters, rejoice in your humble and exalted King. Well, since Jesus, the exalted King, is still humble today, that has serious implications for your life. First, it means that you can trust Jesus to work all things for your good. As we already read God has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Jesus has all power and authority. Now, can you imagine how frightening that kind of power would be in the hands of someone who is proud and selfish? If you have ever watched one of Marvel's greatest movies, Infinity War, then you might be able to imagine such a terrifying reality as you think of the villain Thanos. At one point in the movie, Thanos had acquired the horrifying power of being able to wipe out half of all living creatures by simply snapping his fingers. What a horrific thought that such power of life and death would fall in the hands of a proud and selfish man. But brothers and sisters, take heart. Neither Thanos, nor Hitler, nor Stalin is on the throne. Jesus Christ is the exalted king. There has never been a man more humble. There has never been a shepherd more loving. Never been a king more sacrificial. He has all power in his hands, and he governs the world with your best interests in mind. If you are in Christ, you have nothing to worry about. Your greatest tragedies are but a stage for God to show his fatherly care for you. But if you are not in Christ, if you are not trusting in him alone for your salvation, you do not have that comfort In fact, Jesus Christ in his radiant glory and unconcealed glory is against you. And one day you will see him in his glory and you will confess that he is Lord. And the question for you today is will you confess him now as your savior or will you confess him then as your subjugator? I plead with you. These promises are for you if you will just believe them. Believe that Jesus took on human flesh and died for you. Believe that he perfectly obeyed in your place. Believe that he perfectly satisfied God's just wrath as your substitute. Believe that God raised him from the dead. Trust that he is now seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for you. Believe that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Believe in Christ, and you too can have the comfort that only comes to those who belong to him. And lastly, to those who are in Christ and under his rule, consider the interest of your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Care for them, even as Christ does. I encourage you to set aside a time to think about how you might bless one of God's people next Lord's Day. Have you noticed God's grace in someone's life? Write it down and make a point to tell them. Can you think of a scripture that might be an encouragement to someone? Share it with them. Is there a physical need that you can help provide? Do so. Give intentional, focused thought to how you might encourage one another in the Lord. Humility is not an abstract concept. It's imaged in the person of Christ. You cannot be humble on your own. It goes against every fiber of sin remaining in you. But you are united to Christ You are living under his kingly rule. You have Christ, the humble one. And so, set your minds on Christ, the humble servant and king. And image forth him in your relationships with one another. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the humility of your Son who became a servant and was obedient even unto death on a cross. Help this church body to image forth their humble and exalted Lord. Help us to consider one another's interest this week to the glory of God the Father in Jesus' name.